What's up? You're listening to Fork the Product. I'm your host, Nick Casares. And I'm your other host, Zach Cohen. Fork the Product is a podcast that explores the intersection of blockchain, product, and user experience. We interview founders and builders to understand how they're approaching problems in the blockchain space. In this episode, we get deep and philosophical with Bobby Dresser, technical project manager for MetaMask. For the uninitiated, MetaMask is the gateway to Web3, enabling you to run Ethereum dApps right in your browser. We had a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation with Bobby, discussing the dynamics of working on a remote-first team, the fuzziness of competition and collaboration, and so much more. All right, welcome to the show, Bobby. We're really excited to have you on. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So why don't you do the you know, ceremonious intro about yourself and your background as well as your path to crypto? Sure. Uh, I um, don't have a particularly stunning path to crypto. I think it, it, uh, it happened as it happens for many. Um, you sort of become aware of a thing and you dig into the thing more and then you start to uh, have the possibilities of this thing kind of unfold before you and, and realize that it's like maybe a way, way bigger, more important, more um, fascinating thing than, than you ever imagined. Um, so for me, that started back in university. I was taking some computer science courses. My nerdy friends were like, this thing is cool. I was like, yeah, it's too expensive. I'm never going to buy any, whatever. Um, and fast forward a couple of years, and I have been working at Consensus now for about 10 months. I have a history of working as a product manager in a couple of different roles. Uh, I started my career as a developer at a small healthcare startup back in Boston. Uh, I worked for about a year and a half on Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, first as a developer and then as a product manager for the campaign's fundraising platform, which is a pretty, uh, pretty wild experience. And then after the campaign, I uh, did a little bit of traveling and eventually landed at Consensus, where I joined the Uport team as a product manager. And Uport's building a self-sovereign identity platform, uh, which in my opinion is one of the most important building blocks of the decentralized future. It's a really, really tough problem to solve. And I think we'll see some interesting stuff go on, um, both in applications on Ethereum and in the broader ecosystem as sort of the decentralized identity foundation shapes up and uh, people figure out how identity can, can really like, you know, lay the foundation for decentralized apps to come. And then about three months, two months ago, I switched to the MetaMask team. So MetaMask is another one of the consensus projects, and it's a Chrome extension or a web extension that lives in a couple of different browsers. And it's really your sort of gateway to using DApps on the Ethereum blockchain. It's got it's got some interesting like modern day reflections back to the original days of web browser development. Um, it's sort of this experimental way where we're trying to help people understand what Web3 is and what it can do and try to figure out what their assumptions are and how to kind of upgrade them so they can understand how to interact in this new world. So there's a whole host of uh, product and UX challenges that are part of that. And I'm sure we'll dig into those. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for that intro. Um, if we can dig in a little bit further to MetaMask, mm-hmm. tell us, tell us, I guess, walk us through the the experience a little bit uh, for anybody that, who hasn't used MetaMask, which probably isn't very many of us. It's one of the most popular sure, I think, yeah. experiences out there. So walk us through that a little bit and then tell us more specifically which part of that experience you and your team are working on. Sure. So I'll do the, the big picture, which uh, 
which usually starts from someone trying to interact with the blockchain and they don't even know that they need MetaMask. So it's, as I mentioned, sort of like a, a stepping stone. It's sort of an enabler. Um, so I guess as an example, I'm, I'm clicking around Twitter. People are talking about crypto kitties. I don't really know what that is, but I'm into art and I'm into collecting things. And so it sounds like a really sort of interesting new age form of digital art. So I decide maybe I want to check it out. I mean, you could replace that with, I want to buy a token or sure. I want to you know trade something on a decentralized exchange, whatever. But I like crypto kitties. So we'll start there. Um, I hit up the website. It's a cute website, but it doesn't let me do anything. It's like, it's like, you can't buy a kitty. You need MetaMask. So I'm like, what does that even mean? I click around a little bit. They probably bump me to the MetaMask website where, uh, you know, there's a video from 2016 that explains what MetaMask is and, uh, you know, why you need it. But at this point, I might be a little disoriented, but I, I download it anyways. I've got Chrome, kicks me to the Chrome store. I download the extension, pops up into my browser, and then I onboard through MetaMask in this sort of top right corner of my web browser. Um, It'll ask me to set a password, which is used to locally encrypt my vault, which is sort of my uh, seed phrase, my HD keyring, and the associated accounts. Um, it'll show me my seed phrase and tell me to back it up, uh, which is uh, <laughs> like one of these massively fascinating UX things that has to be solved better than it's been solved now. But but currently, the status quo is you get a seed phrase. If you lose it, you're toast. So we try to be very clear that the user needs to see that and write it down. And then you're in. So I've got my, my MetaMask. It's in the top right of my screen. I bounce back to CryptoKitties uh, and I try to do something. And CryptoKitties says, oh, you, or actually, I get that at this point, MetaMask says, you, can't, you don't have any funds to do this thing with. You don't have gas to, to sign a transaction and you don't have, you don't have <laughs> ETH to pay for the gas. You don't have ETH to pay for your CryptoKitty, like blah. So at this point, I now need to go to... Tell me when you get bored, by the way, or tell me when you personally have dropped off in this conversion funnel, because that's a whole other uh, But at this point, I go to Coinbase, or I go to Simplex, or I go to Shapeshift, I buy some ETH, I send it to my address in the extension, and then at long last, I can buy the crypto kitty that I may or may not have lost interest in by now. So um, I guess the summary is people most of the time come to MetaMask because they're trying to do something else. And MetaMask is is the thing that will let them do it. But it's also the point at which they come in contact with the realities of the blockchain. And those are pretty complicated from key management to the actual mechanics of paying for gas, uh, the fact that you need to operate with a largely with a, a centralized entity to actually exchange you know, dollars for ETH so you can literally do anything. Um, there's a lot of steps in there. And so we are thinking a lot about which of those steps we can simplify. Um, and some of, some of them are, are more easily simplified than others, um, which we can partner with, how we make this safe and understandable for users, uh, just the whole host of things. So we work on the extension, but we are, are uh, very active in the community to sort of push standards to make sure that the interaction between dApps and our extension is seamless uh, so that it makes sense to users. That's a huge piece of this. So people understand what they're agreeing to, uh, what they're signing, where their, their funds are going. Um, and so there's a big community component to it as well that we, that we try to uh, enable. So it's great to hear you know, where we are today, but MetaMask has been around for a really long time and is probably one of the most popular applications on top of Ethereum. So would love to hear the history of the project and how it's grown and evolved over the years. 
Sure. I, uh, I'm an interesting person to ask for the history because I haven't been on the team for forever, but I can relay what I know, which is um, about two years ago, actually just over two years ago, because we semi-celebrated MetaMask's second birthday. I think it was last weekend. Um, Aaron Davis, who goes by Kumavis online, and Dan Finley were working at Apple. And um, I believe Aaron went to a meetup and met Vitalik and started getting really stoked about what this thing could be. Um, and he and Dan sort of turned this thing over and over in their heads. Um, and Aaron was the first to leave and establish this project. And Dan was, uh, was soon after. Um, I'm not sure how they met Joe or how they came into the consensus fold, but it was really the two of them to start. And I think they added a lot of people from there. Um, there's a really tight-knit team. It's been quite small for some time. You, a lot of familiar faces that you may be seen at DevCon. Uh, sort of like the most basic thing from the beginning. I think they settled on a Chrome extension because it had the bare minimum for what needed to happen. And uh, it's just like, I guess, been rolling downhill ever since. We're now at about 15 full-time. And we're sort of in in a good reflection of the technology that we're trying to serve. I think we're... Uh, attempting to keep the organization decentralized enough that there's creative juices to sort of come up with new and interesting projects, right? So the extension is very, very successful. And I think it is filling a strong need in the sort of emerging community. But there's more to that puzzle, right? There's this whole mobile landscape that's pretty, um, it, it, I wouldn't say untouched. There's some some strong first movers, but there's definitely like need for a more integrated solution across web yeah. and mobile for both key management and just handling my accounts and ETH back and forth. There's also what we call MetaMask Labs, which is up to some really cool stuff. Um, one of the one of the things that we talk about very little in Ethereum is the fact that nodes themselves, uh, there aren't that ton of. And so there is some vestigial centralization just because that's one of the most difficult pieces of infrastructure to operate. So I'm, I'm now quite far away from the question, but I'll finish this little tangent, which is all of our requests go through Infura and MetaMask Labs, which is sort of the newest incarnation of uh, us continuing to try to solve what we see as the most important problems in the space um, is beginning a project called Mustakala. It's basically a, a JavaScript light client. So uh, there is some some vision of the future where rather than connecting to Infura in order to read the status of the blockchain, there's this peer-to-peer gossip network that could communicate the most recent blockchain information between MetaMask clients. So my browser extension in the background has the most up-to-date like block headers and can get me the status of, say, my account balance or whatever's in the most recent block that I need just from from this like peer-to-peer network that runs in the background. Um, and that's like a huge step towards true decentralization and I think has a lot of cool implications. So uh, started off simple. It's now firing on a lot of different cylinders, um, all stemming from this extension, but I think since it's been such a like a a basic piece of the ecosystem, uh, I think the leadership of the team has gotten a really good sense for all of the pieces that are required to really move things forward. Um, and so I think uh, as the team grows and, and, and sort of spreads, uh, they're keeping that in mind to help these different pieces sort of direct themselves towards the, the most crucial and, and biggest uh, far-reaching problems. Wow, that's fascinating and exciting. Uh, and actually, quick question on, I don't think we actually covered 
uh, your position on the MetaMask team now? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm a I'm a project manager on the MetaMask team, and I have had some really interesting sort of like philosophical, you know, evolution of understanding about what it means to be a product manager and what it means to be a project manager. And I think, you know, in the, I'll use the term real world, that's a fine line and you can have a discussion about it. But especially in the Ethereum ecosystem, and especially on a team that is committed to sort of self-management, I actually really, I think the truth lies somewhere in, in like, the difference between authority and facilitation. So I try as little as possible to tell other people what to do. That's not my job. And I think it's in the organization's DNA to like let people work on what they want to work on. That's like, that's really important. Um, and so I've had roles as a PM where I roll up to sprint planning and I've done a bunch of homework and I got a whole bunch of stuff that needs to happen. And, and it kind of just gets like, you know, handed out to the engineers that I'm lucky to work with. This is so far from that. It's like, I spend a lot of time, um, grooming the GitHub issues and trying to just surface the things that are, that are important for the team. I'm putting a lot of effort right now into building infrastructure so we have a little bit better metrics and, and incoming data because we're pretty weak on that right now. Um, and it's really up to the team to choose what they individually want to work on. And so that has, um, it's just, it's sort of like a reversal of the process. And I am trying to kind of spread information as much as possible, both from outside to inside and within the different groups of people inside the team who are working on different things. Um, and it's really cool. It like, it it makes me more relaxed. I also think that we're building such a nuanced and technical project that it would be very challenging for anyone who's not in the code every single day to really understand where things are going or, or what needs to happen. Um, and so Paul Graham, I think, has a pretty interesting piece on the need or, or non-need for product people. Uh, and I think he sums it up by saying that a product manager is sort of a um, a way of smoothing out the averages of development teams. Like if you have the caliber of people who can really run the system and like understand their users and also build the software, that's going to be a better synergy than than what anyone could ever imagine. But it's also sometimes the case that the people who are best at writing the code don't know what their users need. And so the product manager in his, in his piece, I guess, is introduced to sort of uh, smooth out those two extremes and make it so that you always deliver something, you know, of decent quality. Um, and I, and I hope I'm not, you know, trying to shade all the whole entire profession of product management, because I think it's a really important nuanced, and interesting field. But I think what we're trying to aim for at MetaMask is the idea that we are that first category where we're made up of people who are who are empathetic engineers and don't need to be told by a product person what they're doing or or what they're working on. Um, so I'm trying to like I'm, I'm taking all that to say I'm I'm embracing this title because I think it's it's pretty specifically accurate and I like want to I want to make sure that the authority to decide yeah. what happens and and what priority different projects take remains in the hands of the people who know it best, who happen to be on our team, the engineers. So d digging into that just a little bit, mm -hmm. um, in that role of facilitator versus the person with the authority of what to build, mm -hmm. what, are you what are you bringing to the team in terms of information or process or communication that helps them make great decisions and move forward with things that are actually important? 
Totally. So um, there's such a big range. We are a fully remote team. So everything is Zoom and Slack. And one of the biggest things is information availability, making sure everyone knows where they can go to get the question answered that's written down somewhere. And so there's just like this whole, you know, pushing paper piece of it where it's just like how organized, clear and succinct can we make things so that everyone can find what they need to find as simply as possible. It sounds super basic. It's like really important because a lot of the time if someone can't find something, they just won't <laughs> look for it anymore. And then that piece of information that was, you know, maybe the result of like 30 minutes of a bunch of people's time will just like not land where it needs to land. So that's a piece of it. Um, also take all this, like I'm still new on the team and figuring out how these things work. So uh, all of this comes with a grain of salt. But I think the second biggest piece is trying to give a slightly higher level view of what's happening in our issues. So there's like a massively um, involved open source community. The extension is open source. We get like 10 opened issues a day. There's like a ton of, there's a lot of stuff going on. People come, it's, it's great. It's like the most um, consistent form of user feedback that, that we could ask for, right? Because instead of having to go out and pull opinions and, and um, information from users in the wild, we actually have it coming to us. And obviously it's slanted towards developers because who has a GitHub account who doesn't, you know, care about that sort of thing. But um, it's a super useful input to the prioritization process. So uh, when we're in sprint planning or, you know, every other week or check-ins or whatever we call them, um, there's the, uh, you know, a process of trying to summarize for the team what's going on in the issues and what's getting a lot of heat, what's popping up that's new, what the last release broke. And it's like, it's, it's also basic stuff, but it's important to free up people from having to, you know, stay on all that stuff themselves. And obviously they get pulled in where necessary, but rather than getting a notification for everything that's been happening, there's just like, let's try to have a slightly useful buffer zone in between. Can you, can you geek out on your tools a little bit in terms of organizing information? That one's super interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I am consistently, I, I really, truly love GitHub. Like I, we use ZenHub on top of GitHub to give this little, um, bit, like basically a board. Um, they let you do epics on top. Um, we use milestones for sprints. I, like GitHub is just really smooth. In my opinion, it works it works better for this stuff than Jira does. We used Clubhouse for a little while on my last team. I just like the look of it. I like the keyboard shortcuts. I like the labels. It just is like somehow they're doing the project management tool better than other companies for whom that is their man, their, their mandate. So um, props to them. I hope Microsoft does okay with it. Um, we use GitHub a lot. Uh, we use Zoom. Zoom is pretty basic. There are a lot of interesting dynamics to the Zoom meeting and trying to like pull participation from people is big. Um, one thing that we sometimes use is this like five, four, three, two, one. This is not a tool, more of like a, a team, uh, a team mechanism, but like some people don't have the video on. That's fine. Whatever makes you comfortable. Some people are on mute because they're not, they're in the coffee shop and there's Lady Gaga blasting on the whatever. Like, uh, so having some sort of way to maintain an actual conversation or like get feedback from people. So it's not just one person talking into a void of five zoom tiles, 10 zoom tiles, whatever. Yeah. Um, it's, that's big. Like really yeah, matters. <laughs> so we use this five for like someone says something and they ask for feedback. Everyone gives it a five to a zero. Zero is like, hell no. Five is like absolutely full steam ahead. Um, so I think that's a pretty useful tool to just kind of keep people engaged, uh, keep things moving. We use Slack a lot. You know, Slack is got some good bots in there. They're all right. Um, it's, it's, 
like tools go so far. I think the project manager, I think using GitHub is like the, the biggest source of productivity because there's really no difference between what our community wants and what we're working on. And we right. also get like, this is the first time I've really been a huge part of a, a massively open source project. And so we're writing stories, we're having conversation about specific features and like randos are chiming in. And that's awesome. Like you don't <laughs> yeah. have to wait till you launch the thing and then you get complaints or you get like applause. They're just like, ooh, good idea. But like, here's why my specific use case is slightly different. And that solution you're proposing doesn't actually serve my needs. So that's really cool. That, that would scare the hell out of a lot of people who aren't used to developing software that way, but that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually interesting. As you were describing that, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, the conversation that we just had about product versus project manager. And, you know, I think given the nature of it being open source and very active, massive community around MetaMask, it, it sort of negates the need for or reduces the need for a traditional product manager who's, you know, doing outbound customer discovery. Like you have it all coming inbound and you're you're really, I think... It, it, to your point, it's about sifting through all of that information, and you know that's yeah. that's really something that I think we've found quite a bit in the conversations that we're having with folks on different projects. It's you know the the open source aspect changes the game significantly, and um, and you know I think the active engagement in the Ethereum community is also kind of unique um, from what I can tell. So it's really it's cool. Very cool. Totally. I, I, I will I will say though that uh, I am very conscious of the fact that the, the people providing this very valuable inbound feedback do not make up our entire user base. So MetaMask is like an important sure. developer tool for a lot of folks who are out there building dApps and poking around and whatever. And, and, and those are the people that are most active providing us feedback, etc. There's this whole other group of people who are first-time crypto users don't have a GitHub account, don't know what's going on, don't know what gas means. Like this, this un, this, they're, they're noobs. And it's so important that our product serves them well, because that's how we grow this whole world. Like we have to make it easy for them and we have to provide value to them or at least connect them with the end application that provides them value. Um, and those are people for whom we need to do a lot more outreach. So we, we're, we're hiring for a user experience researcher. We're also hiring for a couple other roles that I will perhaps plug later. Um, but it, like we need we we take user research pretty seriously, especially doing research with folks who aren't all up in our issues. And then we also have a pretty we have you know like a fully um, staffed support team. We have four full time support people because at the end of the day, we're dealing with people's private keys and their money. And a lot of these people have never done something like this before. So losing your seed phrase is very common. Like not understanding how to add a token to your to your extension it's so there's there's a lot of like basic stuff that a technical person probably has figured out but the average user who we deeply care about probably hasn't figured out so that's a, its own whole, whole whole side of feedback some of it comes through support much in the same way that um, issues give us good inbound developer feedback but some of it we have to seek out ourselves so i want to come back to the ux stuff in a minute sure. um, but i want to keep going down this path of the way that your team operates to figure out the problems to solve mm -hmm. One thing that we've been talking to everybody that we interview about is validating assumptions and how you as a team, uh, whatever whatever your role is on that team, how you as a team function to validate assumptions. What does that process look like for you guys? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I will use an example to try to highlight it because I don't think that it's it's you know written down on paper and follows the same path every time. Sure. Um, 
we have so we're in the process of rolling out this new UI and it's got a lot of awesome features, gas customization, ERC20 token support, all this good stuff. It also just looks great. So if you haven't upgraded to the new UI, top right corner menu, it's great. It's waiting for you. Um, the old UI didn't allow a while ago, didn't allow the user to send ERC20 tokens. So I could go into my, for those who don't know, a, a token is a, a, a unit of something that's established through a series of smart contracts on the Ethereum blockchain. So it's uh, based on Ethereum, requires gas to send, um, but is its own unit of, of measurement and dare I say even value. So um, you could add tokens to your extension to track the tokens that were sort of owned by that same account, but you couldn't send them. Um, and we kind of had the assumption that we wanted to focus first on on ETH and let this just be a simple thing and kind of like a management uh, portal and it's sort of a view of your account because there are tools out there that let you do this sort of thing. Um, and over time, we found that a ton of people were going to Mew to my Ether wallet to send their tokens, but connecting with MetaMask. So like it, it, it people found wow. ways around this. There's actually like dozens of YouTube tutorials on how to how it's like how to send tokens from your metamask and they're made like maybe a year ago or before we rolled out this feature in the new ui <laughs> and some of them have tens 20 hundred thousand views it's like there are people who desperately want to do this thing and they have metamask because they ended up in our bucket because it was useful enough or because someone pointed them there and they're they're seeking out, they're desperately seeking out information on how to do this thing, which is you go to, you go to myetherwallet.com and you click the button that says MetaMask and then you unlock your MetaMask and then you can send from the MyEtherWallet website, but it'll, it'll sign with your MetaMask extension. So you're sending tokens through the web UI, even though they, they're, it's just like using MetaMask for what it's meant to be used for, which is key management and, and like a consent mechanism. Um, and that's like a huge signal. So the assumption, if there ever was the assumption that um, folks would just want to manage and not want to like participate or send is blown out of the water by this overwhelming yeah. face of data <laughs> that people desperately want to do it. So the feature exists now. It's, uh, it's, I would love to tell you how much it's being used, but again, we don't have any tracking in the extension itself. So I'm sure that there are folks out there who are doing it a lot. I'm sure there are some people who are still doing it through Mew because that's what they're used to. Um, but it's it's uh you just have to listen and, and try to understand what what people are doing. Yeah, it's like guerrilla tactics to uh, do customer discovery. <laughs> yeah, and I, I I was blown away the first time I typed MetaMask into YouTube. Like, if you're out there, do it. There's so much stuff. There's people. There's like <clears throat> there's a lot of uh, activity. And you know, continuing with that idea of validating assumptions. Um, what is MetaMask's business model today, and how are you all thinking about the sort of long-term sustainability and how are you validating that that's the right approach? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I am actually fascinated by these discussions across the yeah. entire cryptoverse. Um, I think obviously in the big picture, there's the potential to sort of reinvent the way we think about value and rewarding people for work and incentivizing certain behaviors or contributions. Um, for MetaMask specifically, this is a, a pretty hot topic. Um, we think about it a fair bit, but um, we are sort of of the assumption, I guess, that if we force monetization onto the people who are using our product too soon, it will not be good both for our project and for the broader Ethereum ecosystem. And that's another way of saying like, 
none of this stuff is useful yet. Like no one needs a crypto kitty. It's it's a thing. It's like a proof of itself, right? This this stuff is all abstract and 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 a little bit silly. Like I test all, I QA all of this stuff on this fun little pointless app where I like am hatching turtles, right? Like this stuff is 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 like whatever was three generations before Neopets ever existed, right? So we're so far away from delivering actual value to real people. And like dApps are, there are few, if any dApps that are better than their centralized counterparts. So I think we're, we're far enough away from really, uh, you know, like thriving in this, in this like rich environment. So maintaining the fact that this is a tool that people can use for free to get their feet wet and to experiment and to build something that they want is, is pretty important. Um, we're part of consensus. We go through this process each year to renew our funding with consensus. Um, but we're definitely like trying to understand where the monetization piece fits into, to the whole product. And there's a lot of interesting different candidates. And I think we will have to do a little bit of poking around to see uh, which of those makes sense. Um, committed to, to not doing a token in the, in the traditional sense, if at all. Uh, cause it's uh, for a whole variety of semi obvious reasons. Um, and it's okay for now. Like that's, I think the right place to be and we will continue to, you know, think about it as we go forward, but no immediate moves to start charging you for all that stuff. Tell us a little bit then, uh, slightly related, how you think about competition? Yeah. So it's funny. Competition is such a, it's so it's in the one hand, very much the right word, because there are a lot of people trying to build similar things. But in reality, the relationship between these teams is is incredibly positive and collaborative. Like right. just yesterday, we had a call with the status team who's building this mobile DAP browser. And MetaMask will likely build a, a, a mobile product at some point this year and start to move into that territory. I think there's a lot of really exciting possibility in combination with the extension and sort of having one unified presence. Um, in that regard, that makes Status a competitor, right? They're like this really well-built, pretty beautifully designed, very thoughtful organization that's building what's, in my opinion, one of the better dot browsers out there. Um, but we're so much on the same page about Web3 standards, about this, the, a lot of EIPs that are floating around that make all of our lives easier. Because at the end of the day, I am so consistently impressed by the community's focus on like the big picture about getting to this future and not about having my company become the cash cow that makes me a millionaire. Right. And there's a yeah, bunch of sure. reasons for that, but I, but I think one of the the most interesting ones is the fact that this thing is a magnet for, for idealists. It's like blockchain gets, you know, it gets some people who are pretty crappy and want to, you know, make a quick buck and do their thing. But on the other side of the spectrum pulls these people who, who see a better future and like want to devote their substantial talents and intellect towards building technology that can actually change the world. Who knows? Maybe in five years, we'll all be called crazy. Maybe in 20 years, we'll all be called crazy. Or maybe we'll like build some stuff that actually changes the way things work. So the actual question about competition, um, yeah, it's heating up. There's a lot of people doing doing similar things. Um, Toshi's a big one. They've got this browser extension. I mentioned that MetaMask is interested in mobile, which is pretty exciting. Um, Status is a big one. We keep I keep this really big chart uh, that I call the web of wallets, and like there's so many wallets. Uh, it's pretty <laughs> yeah. remarkable. But there's also now more and more common tools that people can use to like build and set up wallets. So I'm fascinated to see where the ecosystem goes. Um, I think MetaMask has a 
has a pretty uh, strong commitment to listening to the community and building what people want uh, and need. And I think that at the end of the day is one of the most valuable things in this in this space. People who care about your product, who trust your team, like uh, yeah. Dan and Aaron have been around for a long time working their asses off and they have earned rightfully the trust of a lot of people who've kind of seen what they do and seen how they think and seen how they respond to security issues or bugs that get out or just like requests for features or uh, requests for input on like pretty some pretty large um, EIPs or, or things like that. And, and they're really great guys. So I think that has helped MetaMask establish itself as like a, a a company to be trusted. A company is a strong word, a team to be trusted. In describing status and, you know, that got me thinking of other projects that, you know, start off, and this includes MetaMask, obviously, they start off with, you know, a laser focus, which is great. And then they sort of conquer that. And now it feels like people are starting to move on to other and bigger things. And I think about, you know, you were talking about being able to send and uh, receive different tokens. Um, you know, that starts to get into like, is it a wallet? Is MetaMask a wallet? Is it just the gateway? Um, and obviously you came from Uport as well. So there there seems to potentially be some overlap there because in some ways you can maybe say that MetaMask serves as an identity as well. So how how do you think about that? It's It seems pretty tricky. Well, and I, I, I guess before you answer that, I want to add something to that, which is because I was thinking about the same thing, which is, you know, Instead of thinking about maybe market share, you know, from a from a just revenue perspective or a customer size perspective, I think right now where where people are with development, the finite thing is is time, right? Like we only have so much time to work on the things that we're passionate about. And so when you're looking at a market, when you're looking at opportunity in general and and trying to figure out where you're going to go next, to Zach's point, as you start looking at the different things that can be built, how much of a consideration are the surrounding technologies and teams that are building those things? Because, you know, is it better just to let them run with that? And you know that you can lean on their technology in a year from now because everybody is essentially connected? Yeah, both great questions. It's like, where are we going? Like, how will these things slide into each other so that they fit into something that's ultimately valuable for like a real world human who's not listening yeah. to this podcast? Um, maybe this is the <laughs> Sorry, I don't know, whatever. Um, yeah, from the top, if I can like remind through the through the questions, I think the combination with with Uport is fascinating. Like it's a wallet, but it's also your identity because your identity is inextricable from the keys that you hold and the claims that are made about the person who holds those keys. So, like at a very technical level, all of these things are bound together, and it's just a matter of how we can surface them in a way that the user doesn't have to care at all. So, there's so many considerations that go into this. One of them is the identity protocol itself and Newport has a bunch of really sophisticated things that they've suggested there's some other EIPs out there i think 725 and 735 make a pretty good case for a, a different type of identity implementation and this all comes back to like what how the user consumes this system that has been built right so like at the end of the day i want to be able to use metamask to visit a lot of different sites and let them make claims about my identity or at least have some way of saving preferences that don't take us back to the client server model that we're moving away from. Like there's a lot of unsolved pieces around storage and around uh, where claims go and how they're actually made. And it's, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated to, to see where things go. Um, to the second piece, 
there are there is no shortage of hard problems and for the most part we're very very happy to let other people tackle these like really really substantial issues and and let them think through it and come up with the right solution and hopefully that solution is interoperable in a way that a lot of the stuff that gets built is so what's cool to me right now is that if i'm building a dap for the most part i can build it and not care how the user comes to visit it whether they're coming through mist or whether they're checking it out on their phone with status or whether they've got metamask in the browser because the community's done an awesome job of keeping these standards open and like you know collaborating as we have to make big changes so um an example is like uh, right now, when you visit a, a site and you have MetaMask or you have status, Web3, the Web3 API is injected by default and anyone can see your addresses, your public your your public addresses. But that means that a site that doesn't even ask and tell if you have MetaMask unlocked and you're just wandering around the internet, they know even if you don't have it unlocked that you at least have it installed. So it's like this massive privacy thing and so obviously needs to be addressed. And so there's a very clear proposal to inject Web3 uh, based off of the user opting in. So um, the basic like login pattern where uh, you visit a dApp, there's a button that says log in. You click that button, it'll pop open a thing that says, would you like to expose the Web3 API or probably something more human readable? Like, would you like to log into this dApp? Uh, and, and MetaMask will share back with the dApp the Web3 object and your associated addresses, which is cool. And it's like a, it's a very basic um, foundational change, but it will break every dApp ever. So the only way to do it is to get everybody on board and sort of take this take this step together, make sure that dApp developers who care about maintaining their site are are ready for it. And I that's like it's fascinating to me that companies that are ostensibly competing can coordinate enough to do that thing so that everyone's on the same page. When it comes to other technologies, I think it would be great. It, like, it, it will be awesome when Uport comes up with some solution for identity management or for storage of identity data that will work with any DAP browser or any uh, any DAP, so that we can take this hairy uh, thing that's challenging to solve and and let people plug it in where they want to and maintain the ability for DAP developers to not care about about where their users come from. Will that last forever? I hope so. I get the hunch that as things heat up, especially for companies that are sort of more focused on monetization, that we'll see some like app-specific features, right? So there's always the concept of differentiation. So how do you make your thing better than the others if everything is an open standard? Um, I'm really interested to see how that, how that plays out. So here's the part of the interview that I really like user experience, <laughs> which is, that, that's my background. So yes. I'm always excited about this yes. part of the interview. Um, I, I want to dig into UX for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I want to start off by understanding, earlier you said that user research is really important to you. And you're hiring a UX researcher, and it's something that you're thinking a lot about. So tell me a little bit about your UX research process. What does it look like? Who's involved? Yeah, so right now MetaMask has one single designer who is uh, Hercules for keeping all there for you know carrying our entire team on his shoulders. His name's Christian. He's incredible, and he somehow does all of the product design for the extension and the the full screen site itself, uh, as well as user research, as well as like all these miscellaneous design needs that emerge out of a team that you know sends people to conferences and maintains an active online presence and stuff like that. Um, 
I am impressed by his ability to do research very casually and quickly. I've worked with designers in the past for whom it's like, all right, I'm going to need, I need three weeks to do this research and you can't talk to me for those three weeks. But he's just like, all right, I'll find a, I'll find a, he just finds, he, he makes it all happen. Um, and I think he's got a keen sense for what features we are making a lot of assumptions about that need to be like gut checked with a real live human being. Um, and what features for like what features are, are are simple enough that we can take a stab and then see if we get some fallback later on uh, or some flack later on. Excuse me. Um, and so it's it's pretty low lift right now. And I think you know obviously the drive to hire a new UX researcher is to make it more formalized, to sort of broaden the range of things that we have the bandwidth to test. Um, and you know who we're testing with obviously changes based on the persona the feature might address. Um, but as I mentioned, there are a lot of developers who use the product. There are a lot of, of new blockchain users who use the product to, for whom like all of this stuff might be new. So it's a matter of kind of understanding what voice needs to be heard and, um, and you just kind of striking up the conversation. What's the focus of your research right now? Is there a particular aspect of, of the user journey that you're really kind of paying attention to or where are you spending your most time? Yeah. So right now I mentioned that there's this new UI and so that's where most of our uh, our love and attention goes. And there are a couple pieces of it that we have understood need to be tweaked. One of them is our set of gas controls. So right now when you submit a transaction, you have to pay for gas. Um, and there's a gas price and a gas limit, and those two things are multiplied to create what we we can give you an estimate for what those will uh, will result in that gets added to your transaction. So there's a lot to like digest there if you don't really know what's going on, um, sure. and and it also varies widely. So like we can simulate the transaction and understand how much gas would let it settle in like a reasonable amount of time, and then suggest that amount of gas to you. Um, but if the network's really slow, it might take like five minutes or it might take an hour. So like there, it's variable. And so we need to have the right UX that strikes a balance between keeping this out of mind enough so the user can just submit a transaction and not, not really worry about the 25 cents that get added to their transaction, but also customizable and controllable enough that a user can get what they need to get done and not have to wait for two hours. Or... If there's a power user who knows exactly what they want, they don't care if this transaction settles in a week and they don't want to pay an extra buck, let them do what they want. If they need it to happen ASAP, let them do what they want. Um, and so there's this whole range of like ideas or considerations. And we've got a pretty cool uh, roadmap, I think, set up for a couple different versions of this gas control. Um, and they get gut checked with users. As I mentioned, like <laughs> this is the type of feature that applies to the 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 newest of users and the most experienced of users. So um, we've sort of have landed on this design that separates it out into a basic set of controls and an advanced set of controls. Basic says, you know, it gives you three options, cheap, average, and fast, which I think does a pretty succinct job of explaining the trade-offs at hand. Um, the advanced set of features is like this beautiful live graph of where your gas price falls in this massive spectrum of time and, and dollars and lets you customize the limit and price independently. So there's a lot of there's a lot of research going into making sure that that resonates with people. Um, so that's one big thing. And then the second big thing is basically the home screen of the extension. So right now we show a list of all of your outbound transactions. And in reality, it's pretty nuanced. So there's a nonce that increments with each transaction that you submit. It 
it's used to make sure that your account is in sync with the blockchain and people aren't fudging with the transactions you submit in what order. And it makes it so that if you submit three transactions in a row, the second and third ones won't land until the first one lands. And if you take that idea and combine it with all of the considerations around gas price I just mentioned, we end up in the situation for a lot of people where like they're waiting on something and they don't understand why the thing isn't happening, but it's blocked on something else that's blocked on the gas price. So it's not always a linear path between like pain point and like solution. And so we're right. redesigning the transaction home screen to help make it clear what's blocking and have this sort of outbox that shows this transaction is waiting to land. These two are blocked behind that thing. You can reprice this transaction if you want it to go faster. You could cancel it if you want to, but it's going to cost you some gas and sort of package all that up into a, uh, a reasonable a reasonable presentation. There's like so much information to convey there and um, doing it in a way that again, bridges this divide between all these different types of users is consistently a challenge, but I think we're honing in on, on the right way to deliver it. That sounds like an easy two week sprint just to solve all of that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Someday. This, it'll be fun. Uh, um, what are your, what are your main uh, research methods right now? Are you, are you interviewing people? Are you doing user testing? What does that look like? Yeah. Um, I do not run this process very much. Like Christian is incredibly autonomous and independent with it, but I think he just does a lot of casual one-on-one interviews, mostly over video chat. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think they're super prescriptive in terms of like, um, stating needs, following an interview pattern, et cetera. But I think he does do a pretty good job of putting something in someone's hands, maybe as a static mock, pretty hands-off and letting them kind of explore it and then narrate what they're thinking as they as they go through it. And then another version of this same, it's not user research in the traditional sense, but again, like we love, it's, it's an awesome experience to get to post some mocks to our GitHub issues and like just see what people come back with, right? That's its own form of asynchronous, like, broader reach developer focused user research and you get some thoughtful stuff especially when someone's considering it for longer than you know two minutes on a on a video call yeah that's a great point you were mentioning you know in the beginning that a lot of what you're doing is coming through github issues and trying to synthesize that information into some insights that you can bring back to the team uh and also exploring more and more metrics uh, mm-hmm. that you can compile so can you talk through a little bit more detail of what that looks like and how, if and how it informs, you know, user research and UX? Yeah, yeah. The the issues right now, it's it's somewhat, ca- I wouldn't say casual, but it's like pretty informal in that you, it's like, if people have been screaming for two weeks on a specific story that's really causing them a lot of havoc, like we should talk about it and someone can probably knock it out pretty pretty soon. We, we haven't even also touched on the conception of bounties because our team posts a lot of bounties on Gitcoin, which is this incredible project out of consensus. Um, we literally just drop an issue in, post like a, whatever you think it's worth, but sometimes a really small amount and someone in this world picks it up and like generally does a really good job at delivering the solution that you're looking for. I'm, I'm consistently impressed by the, by the talent on it, but um, that's an aside. Uh, right now it's pretty heuristic based. It's like, is this doable? Is it necessary? Is this going to cause a ton of architectural concerns under the hood? Is this like, it, it, it's just the sort of like intuition that comes with, you know, understanding a product and, sure. and observing how people interact with it and what they need and knowing what the team's capable of. 
On the metrics side, I am excited to get a lot more quantitative with it. Not metrics from GitHub. Like, sure, I can. See, they actually let you sort by like the issue that has the most emoji reactions, which I found out yesterday and was very <laughs> amused by. Um, but we're, we're really missing this much more quantitative uh, type of analysis, um, both on the back end and the front end. So uh, working with Infura to make sure we can quantify our requests and where they're going and like what people are using and and like dive into actual usage patterns to figure out what violates our assumptions and what is roughly what we kind of understand. Um, and then wiring the, the actual client itself up with enough metrics to let us do A-B testing to understand right now, we don't even know whether people are on the old UI or the new UI. So like really helping us figure out where people are and what they're doing. And I think that's especially important for the people who aren't already telling us in the issue. So um, I feel like that's our, our biggest blind spot right now is just understanding like the flows and where people drop off. We, we talked a little bit about onboarding and how you have to actually get ETH in order to do anything. And that is this huge hurdle that people have to overcome. And like my intuition is a person who has spent years trying to optimize funnels with metrics and A-B tests suggests that that is like the biggest, most horrible thing. And maybe we need to do some sort of like in-page sophisticated buying mechanism that's, you know, better than being bounced out to Coinbase. Um, and maybe that'll help our top line of, of users, but we don't have the metrics to understand that sort of stuff. So um, I will say we're pretty responsive to the community's issues there's also a fair bit of like um just kind of understanding what's important for the longer term vision to whether that's you know supporting multiple blockchains or you know we were talking just this morning about uh gnosis safe which just you know gnosis released this awesome implementation of a multi-signature wallet that works as a chrome extension and and lets you uh sign from the desktop and from your phone at the same time um, and just sort of understanding based on the proximity to, to uh, the actual technical challenges, like that's a really cool thing. Like multi-sigs are awesome and critical and like probably a really good stepping stone for our mobile implementation if we want to think about being able to sign from one contract identity across two devices. So like even though no one's opening an issue to say that we want to do this thing, this is a really exciting technical opportunity. And that sort of stuff just comes from the fact that these are really curious, interested people who are excited to take on like these these challenging opportunities and, and keep pushing MetaMask forward. So one more UX question, and yeah. then I think we're going to jump to some team dynamic stuff. Um, as compared to your previous experiences at other companies, even prior to blockchain technology, does your process with user experience, how, how is it different? I mean, you just mentioned you know mm-hmm. the lack of metrics. It sounds like you're having mm-hmm. to infer a lot and use a lot of intuition to, to figure out what to work on next. But what else might be different between the two different situations? Yeah, I think um, the open source component is big, but we've we've talked about that at length. I think the other thing that's truly different is that a lot of the UX challenges involve explaining brand new topics. Like these are things that people have not encountered before. These are yeah. basic interaction patterns that violate what most people have learned about how the internet works. And that starts at login and key management, which is like, no one's going to reset your password for you. I'm so sorry, but like, it's on <laughs> yeah. you, dude, to, you know, figure this out. Um, that's like that first giant big slap in the face. And then as I kind of walked through this, like the confirmation screen or the gas stuff, these are brand new ideas. And so it's, it's, there's, there's very little prior art in all this stuff. And so I totally credit the folks who are out there like trying new stuff and being really the first people to take a stab at solving these problems. Um, 
And I don't even know how long these solutions will have to be around. Maybe we'll get to abstract a lot of these difficult things away or, you know, yeah. evolve from writing down your seed phrase into some much needed form of social recovery where you can, you know, hit up your friends. But these are still new patterns. So um, yeah. it's just the newness of a lot of it for people. And the fact that a lot of it's like pretty weighty. Like I've, I've worked on teams that build products that deal with money before, but there's usually like a bank in the middle that's going to, you know cover you up to a certain amount and there's usually like you can pull someone's something from the logs and like save their something from ultimate destruction and so few of those things are available to us here it's like yeah you sent us the wrong address like that is i'm so sorry it would be great to jump into a little bit about team dynamics so you talked about the size of the team about 15 people um can you just walk us through you know team composition a bit and sort of roles, responsibilities, and we'll go from sure, there. Sure, sure, sure. So we have, let me think a moment to make sure I get it all right. Um, we're tr- in the process of trying to sort of modularize the team a bit more. So we've uh, we've added about four, four or five people in the past couple months and um, a lot of really talented folks, but, but it's it's like at a certain point, an agile team becomes two agile teams, right? So we're, we're trying to figure out that process. Um we have maybe eight or nine folks on the quote unquote core team who deal a lot with the back end of the extension, a lot of the key management mechanics, a lot of like the the web three provider and like the actual meat of the matter that gets this API into the web page. Uh, and there's that's like sort of I would call our developer product, right? It's like the API that's exposed to Adaptive so that they can interact with a user and 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 prompt them to sign transactions and interact and stuff like that. We've got a we actually work with a UI firm called Kyokin. They they they've worked on a couple of different blockchain pro- projects. They are wonderful. They're very talented. We're lucky to get to work with them. There's three or four people who help us crank out a lot of these UI features that I was discussing. Um, we've got one designer, we've got one person who focuses a lot on ops. Um, we've got a couple folks, maybe two or three, and some overlap with the core team, but two or three folks who work on what I what I called labs earlier. And so that's focused a lot on this Mustikala project, um, which I'm sure you'll hear about more soon, perhaps at DevCon. And um, that's this like, it's the big picture thing. It's like, they're basically trying to put the blockchain on IPFS so that we can really decentralize like the back end of the of the of the way people make requests. Um, so that's cool. It's like a very long tail project, um, but it's a, it's a cool thing to have. And I think eventually there's some really awesome synergies with the MetaMask sort of core extension. Um, and then, as I mentioned, we've got a support team of four um, and they do a wonderful job. I mean, they, they deal with a lot of stuff. There are people who write in from all over the world um, as the team so we had a kind of explosion of, of usage numbers this past winter. Uh, it was like, you know, 300,000, 400,000, then CryptoKitties happened, and then it was pushing wow. a million, and then it broke a million. Now we're at 1.3 million downloads. Um, and with that, obviously, comes like this massive influx of requests of this isn't working, of support my blockchain, of I lost my seeds, right? So we've got this support team who does a, a, a decent job of helping those people stay sane, um, you know, keeping our keeping our team focused on, on building things of value. Um, and so, yeah, that's the team breakdown. We we follow a roughly defined sprint process. Um, 
as I mentioned, it's very self-directed. Like people choose what they think is important. And there's this awesome culture of sharing, of, of learning, of educating ourselves about the ecosystem and trends that emerge and new projects that are happening. Because I think it's so many things uh, emerge on a daily basis that like, if we don't stay up on, on what's happening, then we will fail to continue to deliver the best thing we can. Um, and I think through that process, we kind of land on on what big picture stuff makes the most sense and like what awesome new opportunities emerge for us. Um, that obviously is balanced by like what I call eating our vegetables, where there's like some broken stuff every once in a while. There's like bugs that need to be fixed. Some of those things can be bountied and, and folks are awesome in the community about picking them up and like addressing stuff that they need to. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that gets pretty meaty and is, is better handled by our team if it's going to touch a lot of different components. And so, um, it's like a really cool thing to see this, this, uh, personal responsibility sort of emerge because everyone knows they can't just work on like sexy, fun, new features. And uh, rather than being prescriptive and be like, someone has to pick up this issue. It's just like, there's a sense of responsibility of being part of this team where people kind of, um, volunteer to like keep the thing top notch and like they want to maintain their reputation and they understand that contributing in these small ways and like sometimes working on stuff that's not the most fun is the way to do that so um it i think to to me like seeing that thing is one of the one of the observations that really solidified my belief in the idea that this sort of team can succeed where like no one's bossing each other around there's no like command and control there's no ceo has to dictate what's what's going to happen like it really can be the result of collaboration between a group of interested uh interested and thoughtful people yeah that is yeah that's really cool yeah refreshing (laughs) too probably (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh, for me it's very refreshing it's just like it's cool i can also be my strange self and like and the team is is cool with that right like everyone's just here because they want to be here they're not here because they like are gonna make a million bucks or or you know get to boss the people around or stuff like that you know you you were talking a lot about how self-directed it is and that is exciting and refreshing uh, but how do you all come together and sort of plan out the roadmap and think about long-term vision and what does that look like? Yeah, yeah, we, we're lucky enough to actually get to uh, travel and be together every once in a while. So about a month, uh, about three weeks ago, we took a really lovely trip to the Big Island of Hawaii and spent a couple of days just like talking basically about what we want this thing to become and how we make it sustainable and um, like really what we want the organization to evolve into. Um, I think strategy discussions in general mm-hmm. are, are pretty tough, uh, over zoom, obviously you can do it. And I've, I, I'm, I see other teams with some really inventive stuff. Like I'm, I'm consistently impressed by statuses, like implementation of this thing they call swarms and, and they are great at setting OKRs and being thoroughly decentralized and documenting all of it, even to someone outside their organization. Um, so I think one of the things that it's, it's a challenge for an organization, but I think we can try to get better at the big picture conversations, uh, asynchronously, or at least like while we're apart. Um, but for the most part, it's been done in person, right? Like we'll all end up at a conference and we get to talk about the big picture stuff or what we learned and how it relates to what we want to do. Um, this retreat recently was a pretty good way to do it. Hopefully we'll get to have one in six months or a year's time and kind of check back in and, and, um, re-steer. But those conversations again are, are very organic and like, people bring to the table what they think and and there's some dramatically different views like make it a co-op versus like we need to be profitable tomorrow like those 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 opinions exist and it's a matter of like finding some common ground like the ultimate exercise in and collaboration yeah as you describe this it it sounds a lot like zoom has replaced uh 
the old garages in Palo Alto. <laughs> oh, I know, but I hate that. Like, I have this love-hate relationship with Zoom. It's like, what is a video chat meeting? What is it? We're all staring at a computer. Like, what? Uh, some of them are great. Some of them are terrible. Like, and then the person is saying yeah. the most important thing, and then they cut out, and then it's trash. And then, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's rough. We uh, Nick and I have spent a lot of time working together in remote teams, and it it's definitely a challenge. Yeah, it's still an adjustment period for me. I mean, this is the first time I've worked in a remote organization. And so I'm, especially as someone who, like a lot of my job is is based on communication and making sure everyone has what they need. And it, it's not just like technically satisfied with the information and tools to do their job, but also like emotionally satisfied that they're happy on the team, that they feel appreciated, that they are working on things that they're interested in. And just like, it's hard over Zoom. That's all. Yeah, I think that the latter is probably the harder, at least, on, on yeah. the experience into that, because I've worked for for remote teams for quite a while now, mm-hmm. and building that culture, and not even building it, just fostering culture mm-hmm. when you're thousands of miles away, you know, Zoom's not good for that. It's tough. Yeah. Well, we're making do. I think there's enough weirdness on the team. We've got enough. Like we're pretty good at um, or not good, I should say, but our <laughs> our meetings tend to wander like more than I personally as a rather organized person was initially comfortable with. But I think I came to realize that that's actually a really important component of maintaining some sort of good vibe or positive culture. Like, so what if we waste 10 minutes in this meeting talking about something that like le- makes everyone leave with a smile? Yeah. Ultimately, that's probably going to make us more productive and like so true. And make us all a little happier to be. Yeah. So, so it's true. A constant process this job is unlike anything i've ever done both this and the and the role at eport and so it's constant process of like learning and unlearning and just like evaluating things at face value and like okay if agile was drilled into my head at this past job like maybe it's not right here there's some there's some tweaks that need to happen to make it fit this team right so just being responsive to the reality of the organization and its goals and its tendencies and its quirks like that's i think what everyone in a in a, in a new position needs to do before we jump back to, well, we want to talk about expectations and communication and, and outcomes in a second. But before we go there, I want to jump back to UX for one second, because there was a piece of the conversation that we didn't dig into that I really want to touch on. Um, MetaMask in a lot of ways is, you know, it's the gateway to an experience that that is something else, right? And so I'm curious, how much conversation have you had with your team around how much do you consider other experiences the experience after MetaMask when, when you're making user experience decisions for MetaMask, because in a lot of ways, other teams are going to be leaning on MetaMask and the UX that you bring to the table for that in an initial touch point with the user. Mm-hmm. You know, So how much of a consideration is that for you? And I guess, how does that play into your thought process about the overall user journey? Yeah, that's a great question. Like at, at its core, most interactions with the blockchain are asking the user to confirm something. It's like, we know where the keys live and we know what the app is asking. And it's like, we have to present that to the user and we have to communicate specifically what the what the application is asking them to do or consent to or give. And the user has to agree to that and then we're, we're good to go. So it's this like, it's this constant pr- struggle to represent that thing in a way that is human readable enough that is like non-spoofable because there's huge security considerations like sure. around what a function call is actually going to grant to a specific smart contract. And like, as we discussed all of these new UX issues that we have to explain to users, some of them carry significant responsibility. So like when you're prompted with a, with a 
confirm transaction screen, like what is it actually asking you? Oh, you're not actually going to send anyone ETH, but you might be signing, uh, you might be like submitting this function call that's going to grant the contract the ability to spend all of your tokens of a specific token. And like that has to be specifically tailored to appear a little bit different to the user. And so there's this whole consideration of making sure the user understands what they're doing, making sure it's faithful to what's actually technically happening while still being human readable enough. And that's on the one side of it. And then from the developer's perspective, like it's weird to click, you know, check out and then have some totally different UI pop up that you can't even control, right? Like, like if I'm, you know, like, uh, decentralized StubHub, you know, I want someone to buy a ticket and they have to confirm it through MetaMask, which is, I guess, like PayPal sort of in that it's like you're bumping out somewhere else convenient to to do what you want to do. But um, I think we have a long way to go in improving that user experience for dApps so that they can maybe specify how something's formatted or give some more detail to a specific transaction screen. Um, And that's partially like an ecosystem maturity thing. And there've been some fun, Mm. interesting proposals about how you could theoretically like host a template on IPFS and reference the hash in a smart contract so that whenever you call a function, like a client like MetaMask would know what template to show to the user, which I think is probably a pretty good experience for both the user and the developer, but it's like, we're not, we're not there yet. Um, and there's security concerns in that too, to make sure that it's actually representing faithfully what's going on. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot in there and we think about it a lot. We actually just released this redesigned confirm screen that gets a little bit more specific with the function name that the user is consenting to, um, and has a couple edge cases that are specifically formatted for, for, um, assigning transactions that do kind of weird things that need a little bit of explanation. Um, so we think about this a lot and I think part of it's user education and part of it's just making sure that we stay in constant communication with app developers so that they, uh, have the best tooling to make their experience as good as, as good as they can. Sure. Yeah. And, and I totally agree that, that things will start to standardize, I think, as we go forward and in a lot of ways, uh, you know, I, I can look forward five or 10 years and we're in a place where there's interface guidelines that are shared by the entire community, mm-hmm. you know, and, and interaction patterns that as a community, you just adhere to because it's the best practice, right? Mm-hmm. right? And there are a shocking number of those already, like interaction patterns that people just adhere to because it's the way things work and it makes right. it, it pretty interoperable. It's just, we're still far away from those things, like really taking into consideration the the truly, um, the truly noob user because there's a lot of more basic stuff to figure out first. Um, but I am confident that we'll get there. Well, thanks for letting me backtrack to the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. um, I think what we wanted to kind of close out with, there's, there's a couple of things, but the first would be how you go about communicating stakeholder expectations um, across the organization. You know, First of all, who are you communicating to when it comes to stakeholders? And second of all, how do you manage expectations and, and communicate the progress of where the project is going? What's like, what's a stakeholder? Like, what does that mean to you? You know, are they, are stakeholders, the community? Are they people within consensus? Like maybe they're both. Sure. I think we just try to be as transparent as possible. Um, and we ha- we are lucky to have a lot of flexibility um, to set our own vision. And I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of folks who believe in this project within consensus. And I think that like is a, uh, a pretty fertile environment for experimentation and uh, that sort of trust that goes a long way in helping us be productive. 
with the community, we try to be as as open and transparent as possible. Um, it's like, again, an open source project, so the changelog is always there. Um, last month, I put out the first ever like MetaMask monthly, which I'll probably whip up again next week just to put like some words to the changelog and be like, hey, everyone, we're here. We have a pulse. Here's what we're working on. Here's what we're thinking about. Like, um, And I think that that goes a long way, too. Um, and then within consensus, like if if there were stakeholders, um, we try to g- give you know like a biweekly update. This is what we thought about. This is how the mesh could help us, etc. Um, Who are those stakeholders within consensus outside of MetaMask? There's actually a, a full mesh a, a biweekly meeting. So like there's an hour, and then we go through a slide deck, and every project has a slide, and people present. Um, so it's like whoever wants to, right? There's this like kind of obligation to. Um, communicate with the mesh, but really, to me, that obligation extends to like everyone. So it's like I, I don't personally don't distinguish between our communications within consensus and with the broader uh, group of users and developers and, and community people. Right? Like we should just be obvious what we're doing. We should be obvious what we're thinking about because most of the time, asking for input results in a better decision, um, and it also you know it increases some goodwill and helps people feel like they've got influence and input and and uh, can go a long way towards buy-in. I don't know that we have like stakeholders that we're trying to please. I think people want to see this project succeed, and there are a lot of different opinions on how that can happen. Um, but we're doing a, a decent job of taking those, synthesizing them, you know, choosing selectively where we go and and when and why. Yeah, that's that actually gets to probably one of the last questions since I think we're running out of time here. But what is success, and what does that look like, and how do you know when you get there? Yeah, that's yeah, totally. I think success is is slightly different for a lot of different people, but I think at least within our team, I think there's this broadly shared vision of a more decentralized world, like a place where where power structures are slightly more fair, where things aren't set up to kind of milk the people that participate just for the sake of profit or capitalism. Like I think um it looks different depending on on who you ask, but it's 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 um yeah it's like there's power in people's hands people can do what they want to do and choose how to collaborate or form groups organizations social structures that they want and they don't have to ask permission or seek shelter or you know pay rent it's just like the ability to organize and to create and to live in some sort of world where you don't have to play by someone else's rules you can you can choose how the thing looks for you and yourself and your community and and in your slice of the world um, that's like the most smushy thing that I could possibly say. I think we, we need to bring more people onto Ethereum, uh, or onto other blockchains or just into the decentralized web, because I do think it'll go past Ethereum. I also think we need to help people build better applications. Like, and, and that goes back to this division of developer users and non-developer users. It's like, we need to help help actually build this thing up so that it's useful and so that it's more useful and more trustworthy, more secure, more fair than the centralized web that we live in. And I believe that that's technically possible. And again, there's, as we've kind of covered, there's, there's a long way to go to get there, but I think that's success for us. It's like bringing more people in the door and making sure the thing inside the door is actually worth, you know, making the journey for. Uh, And I, and I do think we can do both. And it's like a, it's a, it's a hard balance to strike, but it, will lift, uh, lift all, all boats, as the expression goes. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, and one follow-up to that. So you mentioned, I think, 1.3 million downloads. Other than that, what are 
what are the metrics that you're looking at that you do have available? So few, so sadly few. Um, that's the biggest, that's like the one that we have benchmarked at for the past couple of months, but I am very excited in the next couple of weeks to, uh, again, like get in lockstep with Infura. So we actually see how much network traffic is coming from folks using MetaMask, where they're spending their time, what dApps are making tons of calls and could, you know, um, like have grasped this substantial user base. And then that, I guess that's on the, the backend side or at least interactions with the network. Um, within the app itself, like what's activity like? Are people using this thing? Do they come back? Are there a lot of one and done? Is there is there some healthy base of, of weekly active users? Um, and then beyond that, I... I think there's a lot of possibility, right? There's there's so much like potential to actually tune this thing so that it makes sense to people and test our way towards like a successful, smooth, um, very understandable product uh, from onboarding through these confirmation screens that I'm describing through like all these nuances of technical minutia that people need to come to understand. Um, but we're it's a it's a aspiration. It's not a reality. So I will yeah, be really honest about that. Um, it's, um... It's yeah. exciting, right? Like, and not only is is it exciting because it's so early on, but you know, I think we're all in this for the same reason, you know, for for the reasons that you described and your mushy response that I think, you know, completely resonates with Nick and I. Um, it, it's it's funny how there's this like juxtaposition between this hard computer science and you know economics and game theory that makes the blockchain and, you know, token ecosystem work and these lofty philosophical um, ambitions that we have. So, all right, well, we have, we have two closing questions. All right, I'm here. Zach, I'll I'll let you ask the FTP question. Yeah. So, you know, this is fork the product and we would Mm be uh, remiss if we did not ask how you as a team think about the possibility that, you know, as an open source project, anybody can fork your code and, mm-hmm. you know, build the exact same or tweak the, the product that you have. How do you, how do you deal with that? Um, it's happened before and it will continue to happen. And I fully embrace it. If someone forks MetaMask, we learn so much from what they choose to do and how it's received that like, I think it's an incredibly valuable thing to see. And it's also pretty flattering. It's like there's a solid foundation of something that works here and someone wants to like spend their time and energy taking it to the next level. Like, I don't know, maybe we hire them. Maybe we fold it back in. There's, it's, it's, uh, it's all in good, uh, all in good faith. Yeah, it's like these, it's like a massive parallel experiment going on. It's really, it's just so fascinating. Yeah, we were actually talking the other day. So there's a fork of MetaMask that's called MetaMask Pro. Uh, and they did almost nothing to the code base, but they did add the word pro, which is kind of smexy. And then they also changed the orange to like this pretty hideous shade of of sunburn. I don't really know what else to call it. And they are they're actually buying Google ads to uh to bump this thing up in people's search wow. results. So I would also I would also say for for people out there listening, be very very careful downloading a fork of MetaMask and sending any value to it. Uh, like there's been a lot of phishing stuff out there. You don't know if they're actually sending to the address you state that you yeah. input into the extension. Like you should use products that you trust, especially if you're trusting them with your funds. Totally. Um, but if you want to fork and build something useful, that's that's cool. That's cool. totally fine. Hit us up. All right. So final question. Uh, this is more about you than about 
MetaMask or, mm -hmm. or blockchain. Um, so we like to ask this question of all our guests, but tell our listeners something about yourself that they would find interesting and or unusual. Hmm. Um, yeah. And so I, I, we started, you know, the classic intro question, hi, where are you? Where'd you come from? Why are you working on, on blockchain things? And we started, I started after university, but I, I studied computer science, which I am thankful for. But I think for me, it was probably the least likely major. And I spent a couple of years intending to study English or literature um, out of a passion for books and for writing and for like sort of storytelling and the, the ability for literature to kind of imagine some new world that people in our current reality can actually look at and learn from and, and, um, and lead better lives based off of. Um, I got far better grades in my English classes than I did in my computer science classes, but I uh, kind of felt this need to truly understand how the world works or else I'd kind of be living in some haze or some cloud. And, and that manifested itself in like the desire to, to understand more about the fundamentals of this type of technology that basically runs our entire world. So I think that decision has led me down a path. I don't, I never anticipated and I'm very, very thankful to be here. And I think there is some sort of dovetail of the two of those things. Like, like if with enough idealism and with enough, maybe like fiction injected into your bloodstream, I think it's possible to kind of like use your technical skills to build towards a better world that doesn't just involve like delivering groceries to someone in uh, the like most expensive city on earth. Right? Like, actually looking towards the problems yeah. that people face and understanding enough about the world to realize what needs to change and, and, you know, like choosing to spend your energy in, in pursuit of something better. Awesome. Um, before I click stop, were there, did you want to plug the positions you're hiring for? Yes, for sure. Okay. So I'm not sure when this podcast airs, I appreciate the allowance to, uh, give me some time. We are hiring for a chief security engineer. So uh, I mentioned some phishing stuff. There's, in general, a lot of application security that we take really seriously. Um, and it's, I think, a pretty exciting opportunity to sort of set the standards for how uh, the decentralized web works and how one of the, the biggest consumer-facing applications kind of handles the security practices. So chief security engineer for sure. And then I also mentioned mobile, which is very exciting uh, and sort of taking a big plunge into the mobile ecosystem. So we are hiring for senior iOS and Android devs. If that's you or someone you know or someone you think you know or someone you met last night at the blockchain meetup in your local city, <laughs> send them our way. Um, the job postings are on the this website. You can hit up uh, team at metamask.io. Uh, you can DM me on the internet. You'll figure it out. This has been this has been awesome. It's been a joy to speak with you. Thank you so much for the insight and it's it's been a real pleasure. Cheers guys. Thank you for having me. Enjoy it.